Whatever you do, whatever you enjoy, you need your health. Welcome to the Original Guide to Men's Health, a podcast designed for men of all ages to learn about and access good health. This guide shares knowledge on how to be and stay healthy. Maintenance and prevention strategies, along with reviews of conditions and issues affecting wellness are explored. Please join me, your host, Dr. Richard Pellman, as I interview renowned experts who will provide you with timely, relevant, and vital information so that you can embark on a journey towards better health. For more information from this podcast, including take-home points and resource links, we invite you to visit our website, theoriginalguidetomenshealth.org. You can also find us on social media. We invite you to follow us there and share episodes on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. In this two-part episode of The Original Guide to Men's Health, we explore where the modern male finds himself. Are males in crisis? We review data demonstrating a trend in increasing gaps in educational achievement, increasing rates of male suicide and addictions, the preponderance of males in the homeless population, and the decline in males participating in key careers. We also explore a novel Washington State bill to create a commission on boys and men, why it's important If you're unsure if men are indeed in crisis, or you may already be familiar with some of the issues, listen as we explore, learn, and hear not only the concerns, but solutions from our two very thoughtful, knowledgeable, and engaging guests. We will first hear from Richard V. Reeves. Richard Reeves is a senior fellow in economic studies the Brookings Institute, where he holds the John C. and Nancy D. Whitehead Chair and leads the Boys and Men Project. His research focuses on boys and men, inequality, and social mobility. Our second guest is Representative Mary Dye, first appointed to the House of Representatives. Our next guest is Representative Mary Dye. Representative Dye was first appointed to the Washington State House of Representatives in 2015. Representative Mary Dye is a Republican from the Eastern Washington community of Pomeroy. She is serving her fifth term representing the 9th Legislative District. She is the lead author on the bill, House Bill 1270, to create a commission on boys and men. There's a lot of press about toxic masculinity, and in some instances, it's become a controversy of how far have men been sublimated. I won't go into much of that, but there is a nice review from the August 8th, 2022 issue of The New Yorker by Zoe Heller, How Toxic is Masculinity? A Crop of New Books Reconsiders Feminism Stance Towards Men. 
And that kind of leads us to our guest, Richard Reeves, Senior Research Fellow at the Brookings Institute, who is also an author. And uh, Richard has authored a book which has received really great reviews titled Of Boys and Men, Why the Modern Male is Struggling, Why It Matters, and What to Do About It. So welcome, Richard Reeves, and thank you so much for taking time to join us on this podcast. So there are many men who go, what are we talking about here? I go to work and I don't, I mean, I'm aware of news, but I don't really experience it and I'm fine and successful and not everybody gets it. And yet there's going to be people who immediately identify with this concept. And so why don't you go into a little background about it? Sure. I do think that there's sometimes a problem of persuading men that men might be struggling, right? Because that's a bit counterintuitive for a lot of men, let alone women. Sometimes, in fact, it's easier to persuade women that men are struggling if they have sons or brothers, husbands who are struggling. And the reason I ended up tackling this subject at at book length is just because I think there are enough data points now to suggest that there are some real problems facing many boys and men. And that whilst I avoid this label of the crisis of masculinity, because there's a crisis of masculinity about every 15 or 20 years or so, as far as I can tell, like now, before the Vietnam War, after the Vietnam War, 30s. The difference this time is that there really are trends that that are troubling, obviously, in, in mental health. I don't need to talk to you about that. But, you know, the very high suicide rates and rising. But even areas like employment, falling labor force participation, most men today earn less than most men did in 1979. In America, that's a pretty important economic fact of life. We see huge gaps in education. And so if there is a, quote, crisis of masculinity, this time around, there are some data points to support it. This is not just a media confection. There are actually a number of reasons why we should be troubled by some of these trends. And that requires us to act, to actually to deal with some of them. Otherwise, they're going to fester. And I like the fact that, you know, you're really presenting some concrete solutions, which we'll get into in a bit. We'll keep exploring this concept for uh, before we actually go to your book. But in the essence of what we're going to be discussing, we're really not bashing feminism here. I mean, this has nothing to do with what we're talking about. So, because we do have a lot of female listeners as well. This is, well, it's men's health, it's family health. And we want to make sure that people don't turn this off immediately and go, oh, this is an apologist for men's behavior. Partly why I wrote the book, because if the only people who are talking about and writing about these problems can be dismissed as anti-feminists or misogynists, then the only people who will risk writing about these issues are the anti-feminists misogynists. So you basically create that world. And I know I, I think that it's got to be possible to think two thoughts at once. It's got to be possible to say there are many, many issues where girls and women are at a structural disadvantage and that there are some areas where we now should be more concerned about boys and men and that it's not a zero-sum game. The way that it's defined sometimes is that it's rather like saying to a parent of a son and a daughter, which one do you care about? And that obviously would be an absurd question, but it's equally absurd to say that we should be more concerned about the flourishing of one sex or the other. And we're in a position now where there are some issues where that means paying particular attention to boys and men. Without that meaning, you have to stop paying attention to the ongoing issues facing women and girls. That is a nice statement that I think makes this very understandable. 
And hopefully people will continue to listen as we delve into this. Because I was impressed at your talk. You come home, your wife says, how was your day? You asked, do you want the mean or the median? You deal with statistics. And you have a lot of data that you presented. And, you know, people look at data and go, well, I could. But you have really explored this from a research point of view. So you also had a little background in you're raising boys. Yeah, I have three sons, all in their 20s now. I've raised them in the UK and the US. So I have this theory that it's not a theory, it's a belief that all scholarship is at least partly autobiographical. It's just a question of whether we admit that to ourselves or not. And so there's no question that the conversations that I was having at home, and as I saw some of the challenges that my own boys face, and they're among the most privileged boys on the planet. So don't want to be clear about that. But then in my day job as a Brookings scholar, just running across some of these facts and these trends, which I didn't think were getting enough attention or the right kind of attention, maybe from the right kinds of people, that structurally we weren't set up to actually hold up some of these data points where they showed the struggles of boys and men in a way that would facilitate a good faith debate. They were used as weapons in the culture war, particularly by those perhaps on the more conservative side, if they were used at all but very often just passed by by many of the people who were studying those subjects. And actually, was a journalist by background, and my first job as a journalist was on The Guardian, and C.P. Scott, the famous editor of the founding editor of The Guardian, said, comment is free, but facts are sacred. I wanted a sort of facts-forward approach here, which is let's get some hard facts on the ground, and then we can argue about whether they matter, why it's happening, etc., but let's at least have a conversation about this that's based in some pretty grounded facts on the ground. Where did you go looking for information? I mean, it's a lot is out there and you must have taken a lot of time in research. Yeah, but because my work tends to look at, I've looked at inequality, racial equity, etc. That's forced me into a necessarily multidisciplinary approach. Because education, labor market, family life, health, all absolutely intertwined when you're looking at something like, say, upwards mobility, well-being, etc. That means that you have to look in all of those corners. And so that's what I ended up doing. And I structured the sort of factual bit of the book, if you like, around the, those core axes. And so I'd go to the education statistics, I'd look at the family trends, I'd look at what's happening in the labor market, BLS, etc. And so there was a bit of original data work. But Honestly, quite a lot of it didn't require a necessary original data work. It just required holding up the data that already existed and paying it more attention. And it was interesting to me how even people who were like quite expert in the field didn't necessarily know some of these facts, even though they were perfectly available publicly. And it's just that they hadn't been they hadn't been brought out into the daylight because it wasn't really anybody's job to bring it out into the daylight. And so I think that creates, as I said a moment, it's a real asymmetry of the information flow here. And it makes it harder when you're arguing with, say, someone who is a men's rights activist, someone who's on the right, you know, more reactionary. When they say, well, no one cares about us, it's much harder to tell them they're crazy to say that when this stuff isn't given enough attention, right? And I can give specific examples of that in mental health and suicide, if you like. But the broad point is that the people on the reactionary side of this debate don't sound as crazy as they should when they claim that mainstream institutions aren't taking these problems seriously. And that sort of brings us into your book a little bit. And let's look at some of the buckets that you explored so we can get a little more specific because 
people are going, well, what specifically did you look at? So I don't know which one you want to begin with, whether you want to look at the mental health, the suicide, educational, addiction, whichever. Let's start with a few data points. So I've already mentioned like most men today earn less than most men did in 1979. Not true of men at the top, but generally we've seen wage stagnation for middle class and working class men. In education, we've seen a huge overtaking of women and girls in the school system at every level. And it's basically true that in every advanced economy, at every stage of the education system, in basically every subject, girls and women are ahead of boys and men. And to put a really sharp data point on it, in US higher education, there's a bigger gender gap today than there was in 1972. And 72 is is a good year to choose because it's when Title IX was passed. Title IX was the federal law to really promote girls and women in education, especially higher education. And at that point, men were about 13 percentage points more likely to get a four-year college degree than women, 13-point gap. Today, there's a 15-point gap the other way around. We have bigger than Title IX levels gender inequality on US college campuses. It's just the other way around. And that's partly because girls are doing so much better in high school. So if you take GPA among those who have the the top 10% by GPA, two-thirds of them are girls, opposite at the bottom, two-thirds of the lowest GPA scorers are boys. And I could go on, but the basic story is pretty clear in education. And then in family life, we've just seen this profound change in the economic relationship between men and women. The point of the wave of the women's movement was to create greater economic independence for women. That has been if not fully achieved, very significantly achieved. And that is a wonderful thing. That is arguably the greatest economic liberation in human history, to turn marriage and men into a choice rather than a necessity, to paraphrase Margaret Mead, Gloria Steinem, and others. So now 40% of breadwinners are women in US households. And so that's 40% of women now earn more than the average man whereas it's only 13% in 79. That is a transformation in the economic relationships, the relations between men and women, which, as I say, is a huge positive. But massive social changes tend to come with byproducts. And one of the byproducts has been to actually leave many men, including fathers, on the sidelines and unsure what it means now to be fulfilling a pro-social role as a male, lacking purpose, they very often end up despairing. And I think that's a root cause of the rise in suicide of the last 25 years. Men, as you know better than me, are about four times more likely to take their own lives than women. And Fiona Shan's work that I quote in the book looked at the words that men used to describe themselves before suicide or attempted suicide. And the two most commonly used words to self-describe were useless and worthless. Now, of course, that's a group who've selected into that feeling about themselves. But I think there's more to it than just that sense of that is ultimately why I think someone would choose to take their own life. But it's feeling like they're not needed anymore. They're not needed at work. They're not needed in the family. They're not needed in their community, their church, their synagogue, whatever. Check your pick. And that lack of being needed, I think, is the root cause of a lot of the male malaise that we see today. And I'll just put a plug in for an earlier episode we actually have on suicide, suicide prevention, which is worth listening to because I think that many of us go through life and are just shocked when somebody that we know, whether it's a relative, a friend, an acquaintance, has committed suicide and has been successful. In a course that is mandated in our state for all healthcare practitioners regarding suicide prevention, it was mentioned that men have a higher rate because they're more successful, meaning a man attempting suicide has a higher percent chance of completing and being successful. 
but may not lead in attempts. I've seen that similar data too. And I lean probably more on your expertise in interpreting that because it seems as if there are different things going on here in terms of the seriousness of the attempt, right? That is in no way to downplay those who attempt suicide and don't, quote, succeed. But there's a spectrum here rather than a binary. And so I think that to the extent you do see a difference, then I think that that can play into differences in what's happening psychologically. And interestingly, you see similar gender gaps in suicide rates pretty much around the world. It varies a little bit. And so sometimes people say, well, the US has guns and guns are an easy way to kill yourself. And maybe it's easier for men to access guns or whatever. But there are other ways to definitively take your own life tragically in other countries. And men are the ones that find those ways to take their own lives, again, in similar disproportionate numbers to women. So it's, I fear sometimes that the kind of men are just better at getting it done thing, quotes more successful, runs the risk of trivializing the difference um, and potentially even kind of trivializing the quotes unsuccessful attempts, because clearly psychologically, that's hugely important data as well. And it really presents the issue of the need for mental health services. I witnessed the closing of mental health wards because of lack of funding for the hospital. We have lost practitioners, and that's one of the points you make. Very striking that men are less likely to get mental health treatment than women. Referring to US data here, I've seen a 10 percentage point gap. And that could be because men don't have as many mental health problems, but that does not stack up with the other evidence that we have. And so there's some barriers to seeking treatment or help for men. And I think one of the barriers is actually having more male providers, more providers, period, more investment in mental health, more equity between mental and physical health, et cetera. So obviously that's a continued struggle to get past some of the stigma that there is around mental health issues and to get better quality care. That's true of things like postnatal depression, right, for women. But it's also true of some of these issues for depression and suicidal ideation among young men. And I think one thing that really helps is to have more male providers. I know that when I was seeking therapy, I did better. The issues I was dealing with a male therapist, when we needed a therapist for one of my sons, he did much better with a male therapist. And so I think having the option of a male therapist when you're a man or a boy is hugely important. It doesn't mean it's always going to be what you want. And so I see the exodus of men out of these professions as a huge problem, above all for the people who might need those services. And I'm a bit shocked that no one seems to be really like, why are there not alarm bells ringing everywhere (laughs) about the lack of men in these caring professions? Because I really think given what else is going on, there should be alarm bells ringing. So I know you're trying to ring alarm bells. I'm trying to ring alarm bells, but we're pretty small bells by comparison to some of the others. And I think it's close to a crisis now when we're seeing so few men in some of those caring professions, social work, psychology, et cetera. And that perhaps leads us to education where you have some thoughts. Yeah. And that's another area where we're just seeing fewer and fewer men. So we're down to 25% of K-12 teachers being male now, down from 30 plus percent in the 80s. Interestingly, a slight increase in the share of male teachers in private schools. I've discovered this since I finished the book. Private schools creeping up male share, public schools male share continuing to decline. The market could be speaking there a little bit around what parents want in their schools. One in 10 elementary school teachers basically know early years educators are male. 
So it's between two and three percent. So my son, who does some early years education, jokes that like he's a big part of the early years male early years educator workforce. And just to put a sharp point on it, as a share of the profession, there are half as many men teaching kindergarten as there are women flying fighter jets. And so, and that seems to me that the former of those should get more attention than the latter. Again, I'm all for doing as much as we can to get more women in the military. And we are, in fact, redesigning ejector seats, plane cockpits, et cetera, to make them more inclusive. I'm I'm here for that. I think that's fantastic. But I don't see very many equivalent efforts to try and get more men into those early years classrooms, other classrooms, caring professions. And so, you know, to borrow a phrase from the women's movement, you know, if you can't be it, if you can't see it. And there are differences in male and female psychology, meaning that it's just helpful to have more guys around in these spaces for various reasons that I could say more about. And so, again, I think the declining share of men in those professions is a potentially pretty big problem for society and one that's getting close to zero attention, as far as I can tell. You had some data that particularly in certain subjects that in the lower grades, a male teacher actually showed a better outcome for boys? There's some evidence overall for that. I will say that the evidence base here isn't as big as I would like because not very many people are being funded to study this, (laughs) candidly. But there is some evidence that male teachers seem to have a slightly different view of male behavior in students to female. They're a bit less likely to label male behavior as misbehavior or or troublesome behaviors, a little bit more slack maybe. But there's also really interesting evidence that in subjects like English, which is where the gap is huge, just by the way, in the typical US school district now, the girls are almost a grade level ahead in English and uh, dead heat in math. So there are huge gaps in English, which seems to predict future success more than any other subject. And having a male English teacher seems to be quite helpful to boys without affecting girls. The other side of the coin is that having a female STEM teacher seems to help girls without affecting boys. So there's some evidence that having a teacher that sort of goes almost against the grain is helpful to that group. But we have fewer and fewer men teaching altogether. Of the subjects they teach, the one they are least likely to teach is English. And so the very subject area where we would most like to have men, especially in middle and high school, middle school would be great. There's a handful of middle school male English teachers, but all the evidence suggests that that would be really great to have more of them. And so I think we should be offering scholarships to men who want to teach English or early years, et cetera, just in the same way we offer scholarships to women to go into STEM. We should be offering men scholarships to go into those areas where I think it could have quite a big impact. Of course, motivation for many people is a career can be economic. And it's clear that we're not paying our educators, particularly public school educators, well enough. We also, my personal opinion is this recent effort to really hamstring our educators as far as what they can teach. I mean, I haven't interviewed a number of educators, but I can't see a public school educator being too excited about having uh, their curriculum shrunk (laughs) <laughs> rather than expand it. Yeah, I think that discretionary effort thing is a huge problem for educators. I mean, the last thing we want is sort of lawyers standing in the back of every classroom, which is figuratively what we're getting now. That's off-putting to a lot of people. K-12 teachers haven't had a pay rise for the last 20 years. 
nationally speaking. It varies by area, of course, and that ignores things like retirement and so on too. And so I think pay is an issue. And one of the things I was just talking to somebody about this last night, one way we could get at this is to pay the teachers who are doing more extracurricular stuff really quite significant bonuses. They get bonuses for doing it, but how about we kind of gave them super bonuses? Because one thing that happens is male teachers are actually more likely to become coaches. They're more likely to do after-school stuff. Now, that could be because they aren't having to rush home to look after their kids. So it could be because of gendered division of labor, but leave that aside for the moment, it's true. And so it's really hard to increase teacher salaries. We certainly should if we can. But maybe an alternative would be super payments for the people who are coaching after school or running chess clubs or whatever it is, because I think a lot of men would do that. And it might be a way to kind of boost their overall take-home pay without having to do kind of massive across-the-board rises. I don't know. That's an idea in progress that I'm breaking news on your show, Rich. So that's something I'm thinking about. So I'd love people's feedback on that idea. But I think just being realistic about the economics of this, right, is that men do care a bit more about these issues than women. And then the last thing I'll say is I worry about the credential barriers to education, right? I think 50% of K-12 teachers have a master's in education. I worry about the paper ceiling thing. It's like, do we over-credentialize? And it hasn't driven up quality particularly. Right? Credentials don't equal quality. And one of the things I think the private schools might be doing is just making it easier for people to transition into teaching as a profession without having to do however many years of full-time education it is. Because I think there are a lot of us who probably could, with some training, become decent teachers without having to go through like very long and expensive training courses. So I think that's acting as a disincentive for men as well. Are there other areas that you examine in your book? We've talked about mental health and education. What else did you review? The labor market, we've already talked a little bit about, and then family life. So I've already alluded to the fact that there's been this massive shift in family life. And what one of the things that's happened as a result of that is a huge class gradient in marriage and a real a massive change in the relationship between marriage and child rearing. So 40% of children are now born outside marriage. Most children born to non-college educated mothers are born outside of marriage. And so what we're seeing is just this huge shift in family formation away from the kind of marital norm. The problem with that is not the, again, that was part of the point of the women's movement to make marriage a choice rather than a necessity. The problem with that is what does it mean for fathers? And we haven't updated our policies and our norms and our models of fatherhood to keep pace with the fact that so many fathers now are not married to the mother or living with the mother. And so we need a direct model of fatherhood to kind of keep men in touch with their kids. So one of the data points, I didn't just trip over this one. I ran into this one with my shin and my shin is still bleeding from the impact with this particular fact. Within six years of their parents separating, one in three children never see their father again. Like I just don't think that can be okay. And it's not mostly just deadbeat dad stuff where he shrugs his shoulders. And it's true that some fathers will bench themselves. I just think societally, culturally, in terms of policy, we're benching dads if they're not married to the mum because we haven't got into this new world now. And so the conservative right will say, well, get married then. And the left will say, do we really need dads? Isn't that a bit heteronormative? And in the middle, it's just the millions of dads <laughs> trying to make it work in this new world. And 
So we really need an agenda around responsible, engaged, positive fatherhood, which for the reasons I've just identified, neither side of the political aisle are really pushing for. When you've examined these various buckets, did you make any distinction between rural populations and the urban population? Are they equally affected or is this really a more a bias towards those who are living in cities? The truth is that a lot of the trends that I examine are national and so if you're collecting national data on things, then you're mostly talking about cities because most people live in cities. But there are one or two areas where I think there are some differences, like male labor force participation in a lot of rural counties is just absolutely cratered. And there's some evidence that men are less geographically mobile now than women. And so this idea about kind of going where the work is has actually flipped in terms of gender. And we need more data on that question. But the idea of so the men are more likely to be stuck in place than the women in some of those more rural and declining areas. And I also think it's true that we've talked a bit about males in these caring professions, including in teaching, they're more clustered in urban areas. So you know, just to simplify it, like you, you might have like five guys in the urban middle school and then none in the rural middle school. And so we don't spread our men out across schools either. I will say, though, the other thing that's happening, of course, is that there's huge labor shortages in healthcare, especially in rural areas. And you just alluded to some of those challenges more generally in mental health. But it's true across the board in those kind of less well-served areas. And so but those are also places where the quite traditional gender roles in some ways about those positions. And so where we could really make huge progress if we could get more men into those roles. And although I just explained how we, you know, actually we've halved the share of men in psychology, social work, elementary, middle school, and we've literally halved the share of men since the 80s. The one area where we've seen a slight increase in the share of men is in nursing. And back to your earlier question, Rich, nursing is the only one of those to have seen a really decent increase in pay. You can make a decent living as a nurse now, as you know. And so is it a coincidence that that's the one area where we're seeing more men? I don't think that's a coincidence. We're still fighting for nurses to uh, not have to battle an overload at work as reimbursement for medical care goes down. Administrations tend to pile on more patients per nurse, and that leads to burnout, and it's unfortunate. And so that a lot of the nurses are unionized and have just said, enough, we can't take care of people the way we need to take care of people when we're looking after seven instead of two or three. Have you looked at the issues of at-risk populations, vulnerable populations, those in poverty? It must amplify everything we've talked about. Yeah, all of these gender gaps are just much bigger the lower down you go. So as a general proposition, like one of the reasons why upper middle class people, well-educated people might listen to this conversation, they might look around and not see it to anything like the same extent is because it's not to the same extent at the top of the distribution. But as you get into the poorer the community, the bigger the gaps. And it's especially true for black boys and men. So for every two black women getting a college degree, there's only one black man. There are as many black women in the labor force as black men. On almost every dimension, you're seeing these kind of huge gender gaps, high school graduation, college graduation, massive gender gaps within the black category. In fact, I think it's borderline irresponsible now to just use black as a category for a lot of these trends without breaking by gender. I think to use this term of art, you've got to be more intersectional about it because when you do that, you just see, wait a second, there's a massive difference here between say what's happening to black women, black men or black girls and black boys. But the same is true for class. I mean, you look in working class areas, low income areas, regardless of the race and ethnicity, huge gender gaps. And 
I think the most striking finding in some ways for me is the fact that being in a poor family, being in a poor neighborhood, being in an unstable family environment, being in a poor performing school, all of those things affect boys more than girls. Boys are more sensitive to economic and social disadvantage than girls are. And so what that means is that poverty and inequality is a real problem for boys and men. So one of the things I say in the book is like, if you're a conservative worried about boys and men, you should be worried about poverty and inequality. And if you're a liberal worried about inequality and poverty, you should be worried about boys and men because when they grow up, they really struggle and to succeed. And if they're really struggling to succeed, it means their family is going to be poorer. And guess what? The cycle turns. And so male disadvantage is more intergenerational than female disadvantage. And again, I don't think that's a fact that's gotten very much attention, but it's central to the debate about inequality. You can't really talk about economic inequality without talking about boys and men. There was a wonderful little segment on the uh, NBC News, and they had really drilled down on a group of black educators who were lower school and their students, and the fact that they interviewed some of the students who said, yeah, you know, I I was going to leave school. But with my current crop of teachers, I feel like i reinvigorated to learn, and I want to learn. And then they asked the educators, the black men, they, they said a lot of them went through school with no black teachers at all. Mm. So, you know, low motivation to want to finish or stay. There's pretty good evidence that black teachers particularly help black boys. And the trouble is that the data can't break whether or not, I've asked the researchers who've done this, whether it's especially helpful for it to be a black male teacher, because there just aren't enough to do the analysis. But I think it's completely intuitive to think that would be especially true if it was a black male teacher. But I would then broaden it out and just say, also true to just have male teachers. You don't want the idea of educational success to be a feminine idea. And also there's like, I think generally kids believe their eyes rather than their ears. They believe what they see rather than what they're told. And someone just, an educator said to me just last night, actually, he said, boys learn the teacher before they learn the subject. So this idea of like the role of the teacher and the teacher quality and the teacher engagement. And I think that's absolutely true, given that just boys are struggling a bit more to be engaged anyway in school. That means that the quality of the teacher and the resonance between the student and the teacher is even more important for boys than it is for girls. Wonderful statement. Being very sensitive to your time and very grateful to you for giving us this time. I do want to segue a little bit uh, because we are following your interview uh, with Representative Mary Dye, who sponsored in Washington State a House Bill 1270, which would create a commission of boys and men. And all the buckets you just reviewed are part of that bill. It is a wonderfully written bill. And people are hopeful that it will get through and get its hearing. It may not, doesn't, it's got one more year to make it. I, I hope it gets through on this round. But you are actually been asked to help and educate legislators about everything we just talked about. So talk a little bit about the bill and, and why it's so important. Well, if the bill is passed, it would create the first state-level commission on boys and men. Most states have a commission on women, women and girls, something similar, including Washington State, which created a women's commission in, in 2018. And I think that would be a very important precedent. I know there are other states who are thinking about this. I think there's a genuine sense that we should be looking at this issue. And to create an institution 
in a non-partisan way and it's important that this the bill has cross-party support it has three dem sponsors four republican sponsors men and women there are a lot of women's groups lobbying for the bill because a non-partisan body whose job it is to look at the trends look at the data look there's a problem is policy helping with that etc just in the same way the women's commission does I think that would really kind of normalize the discussion, really bring it into the mainstream. That's hugely important in this debate to actually mainstream it, normalize it, make it more boring, make it less culture war, more charts. And just in a very earnest way to just look, take these problems seriously. And of course, we should continue to have a Women's Commission, of course. And I hope they would work together. So I do think that this could create a very important precedent. And I'm pretty sure that if it doesn't happen in Washington state, it will happen somewhere soon internationally there's movement on this too i've just been in, invited to go to norway to speak to the newly created commission on boys and men in norway i got to tell you if norway has a commission on boys and men the tide is turning because the norwegians are nothing if not committed to the idea of gender equality and what they're realizing is that means looking both ways that means looking at both and so I'm hugely encouraged by these signs, including the possibility of this commission in Washington state. Well, and the commission would look at the educational issues, the mental health issues, suicide and addiction, alcoholism, and health. And people go, well, I'm sure that's addressed somewhere in the state government. But there's a eloquence to putting people in the same room to have the discussion, to having a commission. It's the lens, right? You can look at the issue through a specific lens. And so you might say there's wage inequality. But when you look at that through the, the lens of women, then you see a different story. Well, well, what's happening with the gender gap? Oh, it's about childcare. Or what is it about? But so right now, I'd say like, you know, it's like a monocle, right? Like, you just need to look at it through both lenses in complementary ways. So it's not as if there aren't, you know, there is an education department, but who's looking at it through the lens of how are our boys and men doing? Or how does this policy disproportionately help or hinder the flourishing of boys and men, just as we would for women and girls. Well, Representative Dai will be following you, and uh, she was very eloquent in her determination for this bill, and I really hope it gets through. So I always like to wrap up with a couple of things. One is, I'll put you on the spot, so how do you see the future for men, and any advice for youth, adolescents, the 20 to 30-year-olds, the 40 to 50-year-olds? I think we're at this really interesting inflection point where people are realizing that there's work to do here, that we've got to help our boys and men to navigate this new, exciting, but in some ways difficult new world, um, and that that's not going to happen by itself. And so I'm excited by that possibility. I think the tide is turning in the sense that people are willing to just responsibly address the issue. So taking it a little bit away from the culture wars, although... Ask me again in a couple of years if, if that's still true. But I feel like we're past the kind of height of the zero-sum thinking around this. I think Donald Trump, Me Too, toxic masculinity, there was a, a, was a, a really sharp divide for a while. I honestly don't think that my book would have had the reception that it's had if it had been published three years ago. So I think in that sense, I've landed at a moment where there's an appetite, where people want permission to talk about this issue. So I'm reasonably encouraged by the willingness of people to take it forward. But as far as like for young men, boys, parents, I think just like not pathologizing these problems, uh, not falling into the toxic masculinity trap. And instead, think about mature masculinity. Think about what does it mean to become 
go from boy to man. That doesn't happen by itself. We have to learn how to do that. And I've tried to raise my own boys to have the courage to ask a girl out, the grace to accept no for an answer, and the responsibility to make sure that either way she gets home safely. And in there, I'm trying to capture a sense of risk-taking and ambition and just being willing to put yourself out there. And and then also just totally absolute equality of respect and esteem between men and women and understanding that neither side has any entitlement to each other. But then thirdly, a recognition that there is still a role for men to play in terms of just making sure that those who are less, who are more vulnerable than them, whether that's whoever that is, are kind of nurtured, right? Nurturing is a male value too, just in a slightly different way to a female one too. So I'm just really encouraged by the fact that whenever I use that formulation, there are very few women that don't like the sound of that, including feminist women. And so I think that I think we're onto something here in terms of just recognizing and honoring the fact that there are some differences between us and that as long as they're equal, equally held, that there's something rather beautiful about that. Well, I always wrap up so that listeners can find additional resources. I would obviously recommend your book, A Boys and Men, Why the Modern Male is Struggling, Why It Matters, and What to Do About It. Anything else that you would steer people towards? Well, I have some work at Brookings. I have a small project on boys and men at Brookings. I have a a Substack newsletter. I mean, who doesn't? But mine is called Of Boys and Men. And my website is richardvreeves.com. And I'm on Twitter, I'm Richard V. Reeves as well. So relatively easy to find, but I would encourage people to reach out to me and let me know what they think. Richard Reeves, thank you. Thank you, Rich, and thank you for your work. On this episode of The Original Guide to Men's Health, We'll be speaking with Representative Mary Dye. Representative Dye is a Washington State Legislator from the 9th District. Welcome, Representative Dye, and thank you for taking the time to discuss not only the bill that we want to review, but having an interest in men's health. So let's start by you giving a little background about yourself. You bet. Well, thank you so much. I'm a farmer first from the 9th Legislative District. My husband and I run a wheat farm on 3,000 acres plus some and have three girls. So why would I be interested in men's well-being and men's health? That's the question, right? But, you know, I just see, you know, some trends that are very troubling. I sit on the Women's Commission and had a phone call that said, why aren't there any men on the Women's Commission? And it's a really good question, right? But that kind of led to this line of thinking. And then when we started looking at the realities of what is happening to men and boys in our state, one starts to worry about the data that we're beginning to see as a result of this exploration into this issue. Truly, when I see I sit in appropriations and capital budget, and I see the investments that the state is making to make people's lives better in housing, in mental health and addiction and education. It's more than half the budget. And yet we're not delving into the communities that are most affected by things, trends in society. And you start seeing that at data disaggregated by gender, and suddenly it becomes stark and clear that maybe our investments aren't targeted enough towards the people that are most in need. And it, that tends to be boys and men in all of the systems that the 
government is building to try and help elevate people out of despair. Well, that's a great segue into the House Bill 1270 that brought us together. So talk a little bit about House Bill 1270. I'll just start off with it. It's a House Bill seeking to establish a state commission on boys and men. So go a little further than that. Right. So when you start looking at commissions, they generally have a statement at the front as what their tasks are. And when we were looking at the issues facing our boys and our men in this state, you start seeing some startling data on just, I think the ones that strike me is that in Washington state, 77% of all suicides are male. And we've invested in suicide hotlines, special call numbers, and we advertise to make sure that people who are having negative thoughts and those advertisements feature women and men and boys tend to hide their pain a lot. And maybe they think that that hotline isn't for them. If you look at male youth in Washington state, 80% of youth suicides are male, right? And so how do we reach out to those young people that are struggling with discouragement and despair to help them? We have an opioid crisis in our state, significant increases in opioid use since COVID pandemic. And right now, preliminary data from 2022 show that males account for 74% of all the drug overdose deaths for the first three quarters. So the question is, are we targeting to the correct audience to get services and get people who are struggling with loss of hope? And are we getting the right message to those that need these services? It's a system that predominantly is working towards, I don't know, an equity lens, but they are not accounting for our male youth and our men and our boys and their needs. So I I would like to uh, have the Men's Commission really delve into these issues, the why, Why are these things happening and why are they increasing? Why are the trends going the wrong direction, right? And um, how can we build public policy and direct our resources to be most effective to helping those most in need? So we'll delve into that. The bill in general is addressing the well-being of Washington boys, male, youth, and men. And it includes at-risk populations. We're not signaling out the fact that we're excluding anybody. It's really an opportunity to have a commission to really look closely at the issues you mentioned and more. People say, well, I'm sure if you go through all the commissions in the state, there's something looking at drugs, there's something looking at alcohol use, there's something looking at homelessness. But there's an advantage I have always found through the years of work that I've done of putting everybody in the same room at the same table and airing out the information so that it's an exchange that's immediate. Sure, we can email and we can have meetings back and forth, but I think when everybody's in the same room and somebody is looking at the same data, you move things more quickly, you move things with clarity, and you arrive at solutions in a much more expeditious fashion. Right. And there's a lot of intersectionality between the topics that the Men's Commission wants to deal with. For example, you know, we talked about the physical and mental health of men and boys in our state, but 
and a target audience that's struggling with addiction and mental health problems. But we also have an education system. We have, you know, job opportunities and careers and, you know, how does that all play in? And what about family relationships? And what about men and boys experience in the criminal justice system? So how do we look at those holistically and try to understand them? When you follow data, data will lead you to particular subgroups of men, different communities that have particular problems. And a men's commission can be that granular in really evaluating why certain groups, certain men, certain communities are struggling and really try to understand it better and bring clarity to it. One of the issues that really struck me in Washington State's data is that single parenthood Washington State is a little below the national average. National average is uh, 40% of children are raised in a single parent mother, the head of the household home. And Washington State's at 32%, but increasing. And so as we work with early childhood programs and things, how do we show some male mentorship and male modeling in those early years. And we really don't have a lot of men choosing, you know, K through six education as a career. But you see children that their father is absent from the home. They're almost 279% more likely to carry guns and deal drugs as teens. And so that's a question, you know, where are these kids losing hope and not having a strong male mentor in their life. And so these are questions that we want the Men's Commission to ask. Why are these things happening? And how can we do a better job looking at the percent of runaways who are dad-deprived? 90% of runaways are dad-deprived. And so that's something that you don't really look at it, but there is outfall in culture and society when we don't have strong male mentors in children's lives. And I hope that we can discuss that with the Men's Commission and develop some supports that will help single parent families to engage both parents in the rearing of their children. The uh, commission would oversee a number of buckets. As they're listed, you could put bullet points next to educational achievement, suicide, which you briefly touched on, homelessness, drug and alcohol addiction and overdose, which we briefly touched on, and incarceration. And each of these, uh, you know, having the background of a developing male that you just referred to, would be a look into the root causes of each of these issues. Let's start with the educational achievement. You did briefly mention that a lot of uh, boys that don't have a male figure go to school, and there are less male educators than there used to be. In fact, we're losing educators for a number of reasons across the board, male and female, that we need to pay them more. We might get them back. I think that's a major root cause. But I look back when I read the data on that, and I recall my grammar school or lower school, I had more male teachers than female teachers. And I don't think that's the statistic anymore. So let's start with the educational achievement that we would look at and some of the things that can be done. Absolutely. And, you know, since this is about healthcare and men's health, there's a startling statistic in early childhood, you know, early learning in K 
through six, you know, we see a certain amount of lagging for boys in the reading, of course. And we're starting to see trends where they're starting to lag a little bit behind girls as we emphasize STEM and math careers. But it's more of the way the classroom works. And nearly 70% of children 13 to 17 diagnosed with ADHD are boys. And millions of those are receiving prescriptions. And so the question we ask is, are there other options that we can do to help engage boys' learning styles in the classroom and outside? You know, they're active little guys out there. They need to run and play and get fresh air. And they're competitive. And so those are two things that our current school system wants to reduce the amount of minutes in recess, which functionally disadvantages boys in the classroom. And, you know, a lot of times boys benefit from having, you know, physically active, active kinesthetic games so that they can learn and memorize. In those early years, that's a time when children memorize really well. And we should capitalize on that to help those boys be competitive in memory games so that they can become more proficient in their work that they have facing them and have a sense of meaningful accomplishment so that as the competition playing to that advantage, that they feel like they win more than they lose. And, you know, giving those opportunities for a win, a clear win, whether it's by a grade or by, you know, just the way we design the teaching pedagogy, I would hope that 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 would stem some of the disadvantages that they're having in junior high and high school, where in I understand that in Seattle public schools, girls are a full grade year ahead in reading than boys. And I don't know if you've raised children, but in that junior year, that's when you have to qualify for all of the you start putting in your applications for college and seeing if you get any of the scholarships you put in your FAFSA for the Pell Grants. And looking at the data for that, enrollments after COVID are way down for boys in our state, community colleges and universities. If you look at the other data in the U.S. Pell Grant funding, if you disaggregate that by gender, by sex, you get 63% of females get Pell Grants, only 37% of males. And those females go on to complete bachelor's degrees. 57% of those that did enroll in college are females that complete their bachelor degrees and males lag at 43%. So, you know, we're underfunding the financial aid, although there is data from Brookings that shows that financial aid isn't the key indicator of not enrolling. And so the question is why? Why are young men not encouraged to enroll in university? And I think that it's that lag in accomplishment of reading skills that make it easier for you to be successful at university level. And I think that's something that we could really focus on as a policy priority for the men's commission. And you touched on the need for physical education, that was certainly something that when I went through school in public schools, it was part of the curriculum. It's been cut out a lot of curriculums. And so I was interviewing one of my guests for an episode. He was talking about the fact that in one school, while they were waiting for the school board to make decision about getting some recess time put back in, 
the faculty just decided to do it. And the kids were brought out by the faculty, got some time to exercise, and lo and behold, all the test scores went up. <laughs> and it was clear that they benefit from that time. Absolutely. And you know it. We had a first grade teacher that had her degree in physical education. So she set a 5,000 mile goal for the whole school. And so when they arrive at school, they run around laps around the track and they mark it on the chart. And they did achieve that. But her logic was really sound. And she said, what happens? They did that at at beginning, every recess, lunch, after school. But what happens is that you oxygenate the blood. You get your lungs and your oxygen into your blood and kids are able to learn more quickly and retain what they learn more quickly. So, I mean, it's just good health, good mind. (laughs) And, you know, it helps with concentration. Once you've been out blowing off steam, you can sit and, you know, sit for a while. You know, the disparities of uh, having someone who isn't reading at the same level, who doesn't have a opportunity, are all magnified in attempts to get to higher education. So the commission will look at everything. And I just applaud you for, you know, taking that on. And again, I think getting the commission put together where people can look at data, where people can bring in their experience from the community and find the best solutions makes total sense. So on those disparities, just one pin in that is that, you know, we've had policies that have put us into that teaching to the test, the SVAC, and then increasing the number of credits that are required for graduation and thinking that we're going to get higher performance. But in fact, maybe we ought to rethink that model and look at, you know, instead of teaching to facts, maybe try to make a more holistic approach. And, you know, there's a bill that's running on mastery-based education. Maybe we should consider letting children be able to achieve the task and get the dopamine reward from having accomplished a mastery over a, a subject rather than just teaching to the test, teaching to build competencies amongst our young people. Yeah, and confidence. I think when you are able to master something and you get rewarded for, you know, the fact that I was able to do this and also mentorship. Mentorship plays a huge role. You know, sometimes people aren't really aware of what opportunities there are. And when you bring mentors in and expose people to things that they didn't even know were available. And also, you know, the way the brain works, somebody who may be, an amazing and gifted artist or musician, if they're not exposed to music or art, they would never know. So all these opportunities, I think, hopefully would get looked at as part of the educational bucket. Let's uh, talk about incarceration, because you did mention that, and the statistics certainly demonstrate that significant number of men and youths are male who are incarcerated. So if we look at some statistics that were in the bill, there were 88% of uh, Washington counties, both regional city and tribal jails in 2021 had 94% of uh, incarcerated members being male. So we're looking at the root causes for that. Right. And I think that I would say on that data set, I would say it with a bit of caution that, you know, while the population is largely male and largely 
you know, it's the differences in the way that the juvenile youth and men are processing their sense of well-being or their sense of purpose and meaning. And and I spent a bit of time in prison with some gentlemen that were in a special program down in Forsyth, Arizona. And they all spoke about, they knew where they were, they went off the track. And they spoke about how this one young man said that he just wanted to take shortcuts. He didn't want to have to do all the steps in order to be successful in the tasks at hand. His idea of success is, you know, respect from peers. So his peers were criminal and also getting money. So, you know, it led him down that path, but almost universally, every single one said it was drugs and alcohol and partying that got them there. And then it led to, you know, having to do more serious crimes in order to fund and support their addictions. So that was interesting too. So I think that it's not quite necessarily that men are more criminally prone and aggressive and violent. It's that there's some significant differences in how they process their frustration and how they want to achieve what they want to do. And that idea of shortcutting was really a key thing that stuck in my mind that they just wanted a shortcut to success and they didn't want to have to fill all the annoying steps. So how do we help people see the benefits of really working hard to their benefit without falling into the trap of giving up and doing the shortcut and trying to do something that seems fun and enjoyable now, but not focusing on the longer term goals and visions for themselves. And I think a lot of young people today really lack that idea that there is a future for themselves. And some of the political narratives that we hear kind of lend themselves to that. I'm not saying that we shouldn't be concerned about some of these things, but you know, the narrative of the world's going to end because of climate change gets misinterpreted to then why try? So I think we have to be careful as policymakers on what we promote and what we promote into law and how it in fact impacts the the psychology of the average citizen, the average person in our state and in our country. And I see that sense of a despair based on the fact that you don't think there's a future for you in this in this society or in this environment. I think some of the the language of the activists saying that everything's wrong in your life because the system is bad. I think that's doesn't give people a sense of efficacy and agency for their own life. And I would like to see us work on those things. I was just going to say, I think, you know, again, another point toward the commission would be to develop the data that you'd have people in the room who share the expertise, who can go back to the offenders who are experienced with the offenders and bring solutions. So this model that you're presenting of having a commission to address the welfare in these various situations, various buckets, I think is so commendable. Thank you. On that other point, I know I keep interrupting, but the number that really strikes me is the difference between males and females that choose to participate in gangs. It's 92% male thing, right? So what kind of bonding and relationship are these young men needing that's driving them into gangs? That's a really good question we need to ask. 
Absolutely. And in fact, we're going to hopefully have an episode soon on gun violence prevention and be looking at that. You know, what is it that brings the sense of community to these young men who join gangs? I mean, that that's where they're finding fulfillment. But, uh, you know, violence has escalated and a death is a death. What do you foresee as far as looking at homelessness as the ability of the commission to undertake that? Because that's getting a lot of press already. It is getting a lot of press because the proposals on the table are for some serious big spending and some serious borrowing to address homelessness. And the answer for homelessness in the lexicon of the legislature is building affordable housing. But if you're not able to function as an independent adult because of significant opioid or drug addiction or substance abuse problems that don't allow you to sustain a career or employment of any kind, and then you find yourself dropping through the cracks of society. And I think that, you know, years of watching this trend worsen rather than get better, right? To the point where, you know, we're trying to help by providing pup tents so they can sleep on the street, which I find it to be uncivil in a lot of ways, troubling. I also look at the people that are on the street and I wonder, you know, if their mother knows where they're at, you know, and the broken hardness and the brokenness in the family as well. And I think that troubles me a lot. So I look at it and I'm looking at two different distinct populations of homeless just generally the homeless, and they're predominantly unsheltered homeless are male, 67%, two-thirds. But of the men that are homeless, 89% of the vets in Washington that are homeless are male. So of the population of homeless men that are on the street, many of them have served their country honorably and have come to home with some significant mental health and substance use problems that need to be addressed. And no place in my mind is it right that as a society, we aren't picking up and helping those people with significant resources. So that piece of it, I don't understand why we can be so turning a blind eye as we navigate our cities and see that we haven't addressed this at all. When I came into session last year, I was one of the few members that chose to participate in person. We were allowed six members to be on the floor of the house, and I chose to do that. As I was coming in and out of the Capitol, the amount of people sheltering along the sides of I-5 coming into the Capitol was appalling truly appalling in the woods. It's wet, it's cold, it's drizzly, it's miserable. And we had a homeless man, and I'll shout out to Moss Barnett, who lived out in the woods by the Department of Ecology building. And he stayed inside the Capitol building when it opened in the morning. He would sit on a bench outside the Republican caucus and we would sit and read to him or we'd give him eat lunch with him. He usually rejected us providing him food, but we'd always, you know, bring a snack or two. 
And he was just an icon and he died in the woods during COVID. So, you know, this is an issue that we're not dealing with correctly as a culture and we're not addressing root causes. And I would love the uh, men's commission to really address it fundamentally from both the psychological, emotional, social, economic, and other so that we can do wraparound services to bring people out of despair. And I, you know, look at the other buckets of suicide and the drug and alcohol addiction, the same can be applied. It is a bill that to me is just a goodwill white hat bill. And I had sent it to a friend who started a career as a social worker and he said, so the Democrats have a good bill put together. And uh, I said, well, actually, the lead on the bill is Republican. And I think it is bipartisan. And I just see this as something that both parties hopefully will agree on. I don't know how it's going to go. I hate to put labels on it via parties. It's our political system, because this just seems to me as a, a goodwill effort that everybody ought to participate in. And I would hope it is seen like that. It is family health, it's mental health, it's addiction services, it's homelessness, it's education. And you're starting with a group that's most vulnerable. And you're also looking at vulnerable populations. And I don't know how much you want to comment on landscape for the bill. Well, I can make some color commentary from my own experience on this bill. So last year was the first attempt at this bill. I had, it started from that one phone conversation. My legislative assistant at the time, she tasked Blair Daly, who brought the question, to give us data. She comes from media. She won't accept stuff at face value. And so he prepared a PowerPoint for me and did a Zoom meeting where we went through, it was very compelling. And we started from that standpoint, brought in staff and started drafting and questioned every number till it was dead, right? <laughs> because when you're putting something new and novel before a public policy body, you have to have your back straight and you can't just have, you know, shoot from the hip, so to speak. So when we completed the draft, I dropped the bill thinking this was the best piece of work that we had ever done. And it was magnificent. And I told Blair and his team that, ah, yeah, this is this is a piece of cake, best bill, no problem. And then it didn't get a hearing. And I couldn't imagine that it wouldn't. It was so self-evident. And so after session, we formed, reformed a team and brought people that could talk to me in Westside speak and help me understand where I didn't understand. And I realized that there was a lot more of a political charge to this issue than I had understood. And understanding that for me personally, I chose a non-traditional career. My degree is in plant science, crop management. And I worked as a field man before I married my farmer. And that was before women got jobs as field men and <laughs> giving, you know, agronomic advice to growers, producers. So I farmed with my husband side by side for 30 years before I took this job in the legislature. So I've spent 30 years inside the cab of my tractor and my combine and, you know, doing the farm, keeping the farm business float and through hard times and good times. And 
I didn't work outside the farm. I had my children and I took care of my mother who had Alzheimer's for 14 years. So that really put a crimp in anything else that you would take on, right? And so then after she had passed, I was asked to come into the legislature and I joined the legislature in 15. I really am not in the bubble where other people live, right? Farmers are like a little less than 1% of the general population in the United States. And we live very isolated lives. And I'm very happy in that space. And we had our sheep operation as well as the wheat farm. And we had those kids and we did a lot of cool, fun stuff. But I watched the farming community and farmers have the highest suicide rate above veterans. And I've watched the ebb and flow of the emotions. I'm the only woman in the room amongst all these old farmers. And they always like, yeah, Mary, you asked the question so we don't have to embarrass ourselves, you know. So I kind of get their feel, you know. And then I did a bill early on in my career when they put an onerous environmental law onto the growers and tied it to their program payments. And I watched the melees of spirit that just a depressed spirit that fell upon the farm community when they gave the the ability of the government to wear the black hat and throw them out of the industry. And um, I watched that stress on them. And I watched the stress of how the program kept prices low and barely survivable. I watched that. So was able to draft a bill that in Congress called Freedom to Farm, which decoupled the program payments from those policies. And I watched the mood of the general population elevate and they said that farming was fun again. And I watched how that gave them agency over their own operations and that they again were in charge of their success or failure. And it made a big difference emotionally and physically in their life. They got a spring in their step again. It was fun. And I watched that over the years and I'm very happy that was able to pull that across the finish line at Congress. And so this is just what farmers' wives do, I guess. And so then when I came into the legislature, you know, I still see policies that impact the well-being, uh, emotional, spiritual, and physical well-being of people. And I think that's not the right way to help them. You just are making them feel worse. And so giving the Men's Commission a try, I hope that we can see people see a path of positivity forward for them, that they're not just permanently stuck like what the producers did in the early 90s. I just hope that our listeners actually take a moment. It doesn't take very long to read through House Bill 1270 and see that it is very bipartisan and see the good that it could do. And if they agree with it, to uh, give a call to their legislator if they're in Washington State. And even if you're out of state, go ahead and call. Uh, You know, this may be a model for legislation in other states as well. I'm, you know, so encouraged by the fact that you have both parties signed on. Usually that's the biggest battle is one party is throwing something at the other going, oh, we can't do that because of X, Y, or Z. So you've already, to me, gotten over the biggest hurdle. Now it's just getting the rest of the folks to sign on and join in and support it. 
And as I said earlier, when we talk about men's health and why men, because they need a little help. You know, our research in men's health found that guys came to the table late. They tended to be presenting with more advanced disease. They tended not to do preventive measures. They still have higher death rates. In fact, we've slipped a bit during COVID. And this podcast is really aimed at just one of the components, which is the knowledge deficit. I think the more you know, the more you know about how to take care of yourself and what you should do, the better off you are. So I think this bill kind of goes a long way towards that as well. Maybe not just strict health services, but it does encompass a lot of other major issues that affect men. So I just thank you for promoting this and taking time. It really means a lot. Well, thank you for giving me time to speak to you. And it's great to see you at least. And hopefully we can meet in person. I would hope so. I hope that there is going to be hearings and that uh, we can help move this along. Thank you very much. I hope so too. I hope that we can shed some of our biases and hear different points of view. I think that's the key. Well, Representative Mary Dye, thank you. And I hope you have success with this. And I know you'll be successful at other legislation. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. It's great to meet you. In this current legislative session, House Bill 1270 failed to receive a hearing. And thus, it will not pass through the legislative process in this legislative session. It will have another opportunity next year. For those of you who feel that creating this commission is important, please support Representative Dye's efforts and write your local Washington State legislator beginning January of 2024. This completes another episode of the original Guide to Men's Health podcast. We wish to thank all guests who volunteered their time and knowledge. The information presented is the opinion of the speakers. The show's recordings are engineered and edited by Sean Fox. Episode titles and descriptions, as well as editing assistance, are provided by Dr. Kathleen O'Connor, Ph.D. Music for our show is San Juan Bells written and performed by Dr. David Whiting. The podcast is sponsored and published by the Washington State Urology Society. The original Guide to Men's Health is an original publication of the Washington State Urology Society. Reproduction and use without the expressed or written consent of the society is prohibited. For more information about men's health and previous episodes, as well as additional recommended resources, visit us online at the original guide to men's health.com. This is Dr. Richard Pellman thanking you for listening and reminding you to take care of yourself.